Welcome to Bonus Features. Some might call it supplemental material, but it's so much more than that. It's the portion of Secret Handshake where we talk to writers, directors, actors, critics, academics, and flat-out film freaks about the movies they love to get a deeper perspective. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining us this week is Simon Abrams. Now, if you read or listen to Secret Handshake regularly, you know that Simon Abrams is a staple here at this point. He's given us articles on Hard Target, Kinji Fukusaku's Black Lizard, and has even traveled and met up with us at the Exhumed Films 24-Hour Horror Fest at the Colonial Theater last year. Simon's our boy, and we wanted to invite him back because he wrote the liner notes for the Shawscope Arrow Films Blu-ray set, which is really just like a college course in the box for anyone who loves kung fu cinema. So we thought we'd have Simon come in, pick five essential films from the Blu-ray box set, and we could just break it down as me and Martin get schooled by him. But enough from me, here's Simon Abrams on Shawscope Volume 1. So, it's, it's or like how I, I, I said this in the liner notes for, for Volume 1, but it's like... um eventually Shaw Brothers fans feel like they have to choose between Lao Kar Lung and Chang Che. And it's like, it's almost after they split because it feels like you have to choose between one of your two dads. And it's like, it's like, you can have both. You just, they're, they're both pretty great. I mean, like they Chang Che, it, you can't lie and say that like he didn't do great movies without him. Uh, or same thing with Lao Kar Lung that he didn't do stinkers without Chang Che. It's like, it's just, it's a whole, uh, you have to accept both, and it's it's kind of hard because like people tend to to side obviously with like the choreographer. They, they side with the 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 guy that directed you know Chamber uh, the Thirty Six Chamber films, but like or or Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, and and you just it's understandable. But like I I can't I, I look askance at anyone who lo- who doesn't you know love something as as batshit and as inventive as Five Shot. Uh, five uh oh what's it called uh elements ninjas thank you exactly that is a tremendous one that chang did solo and, or without Larkar long at least and it is pure trend chasing glory because it is just like um it's just so energetic he could do a lot of those action scenes and setups in his sleep but like it's just also so like propulsive and dynamic and just gorgeous and the god the the peck and paw esque gore is amazing i don't know sorry it's i'm rambling um <laughs> that's all right well welcome to the show <laughs> good to see you as usual simon yes. hi <laughs> and why don't we explain why we're here for a minute uh we're here to talk about arrow films's uh shaw scope set which you uh, wrote some of the liner notes for and contributed some commentaries for and we thought you know for me and martin um these are let's say relative uh opportunities for for education we we uh aren't the uh, kind of scholars on kung fu cinema like we are on some other stuff like slashers and things like that so this seemed like a perfect opportunity to pick the brain of somebody who obviously it has spent quite a bit of time with these movies. So when 
did you, I, I guess, uh, first kind of fall in love with Kung Fu Cinema and Shaw Brothers in particular? Oh, um, definitely. Like, I'm trying to remember when I first recognized the Shaw Brothers logo. Uh, I'm having a hard time with that. I could tell you, like, Jackie Chan, you know, as a, as a preteen was a huge, uh, like, well, a lot of Kung Fu fans, a huge uh, gateway. Uh, and that got me into, you know, Bruce Lee and a lot of the earlier uh, 70s uh, martial arts films. There were some really good programming that nudged me to filling in, like, major gaps in, like, my early knowledge in college, like uh, Lincoln Center had a really great program called Heroic Grace 2. Um, and there was there was subsequent stuff like MoMA had a Laura Carlong retrospective. And, um, you know, the, the, the guys at Subway Cinema have been tremendous in, you know, introducing people piecemeal to films like Five Element Ninjas and uh, uh, Boxer's Omen and uh, uh, any number of films through not only the New York Asian Film Festival program, but also through uh, Old School Kung Fu Fest, which uh, I'm so glad that they're doing that again because their Joseph Kuo uh, version this past year was a treat. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, it's been like all over uh, since I was a teenager. And um, I was just really, really happy to do to be asked to do the liner notes for the Shaw Scope boxes because uh, I, I did a program at IFC Center of Midnight Movies um, called... Uh, trying to think if it was called like Shaw Brothers Spectaculars, and the well, part of the logline was presented in Shaw Scope, glorious Shaw Scope, and uh, we showed like about twelve movies, uh, including Eight Diagram, Pole Fighter, uh, Holy Flame of the Martial World, Boxer Zomin, uh, fucking Mighty Peking Man, uh, um, Five Venoms, etc. And it was it was great because. Even though, like, winter, especially in New York, it's, like, it's really hard to get people to, to show up to stuff, especially on weekends at a midnight type thing, that, like, it's not already pre-sold to them. It's not like there isn't already a midnight movie or college-friendly audience for, you know, um, say, David Lynch or Jaws or a number of equally worthy films, Eraserhead um, being one, because, you know, that's, that's who could resist? Uh, but, like, at the same time, like, with the Shaw Brothers stuff, the attendance wasn't as great as I would have liked. So it was just nice that, like, when I got this offer, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, we, we did we did a program of Shaw Brothers stuff. He's like, yeah, that's why I'm asking. I'm like, oh, that is, like, that was the best compliment because it's, like, people people notice that stuff. And it's great to see because it's, like, programming and um, this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. And it's, it's worth remembering because it's, like, no, nobody... Uh, a lot of the stuff that, that the New York Asian Film Festival guys do, everybody copies from them uh, because they're not only successful in New York and they not only built that audience, but they are like doing the, the work of showing people and introducing people to stuff. So like, if anybody, I really just want to uh, say how grateful I am to the Subway Cinema guys. They're just uh, heroes, really. Nice. And so we've got 12 movies in the Shaw Scope set, but you we narrowed it down to... Uh, five to talk yeah. about today, and those are uh, King Boxer, Five Shaolin Masters, The Mighty Peking Man, Five Deadly Venoms, and Dirty Ho. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> why? Uh, let's start with King Boxer. Let's just go in order uh, chronologically. Uh, why did we pick this one? 
Well, King Boxer is like it was a precursor in some ways, not only to uh, just before Bruce Lee became uh, a big star in America. He was already big in in, in Asia, but like uh, it was the same year that um, that happened later in the year with a little more Bruce Lee, uh, you know, intercontinental uh, stardom. And but it's also just a tremendous example, not only of a of a of a terrific Shaw Brothers canonical film and a big success story for uh, a lot of the the makers of the movie and the stars. But like it was it's just a, a sign that like at the time, this was a type of movie that people hadn't seen. Uh, I quote from the, the Times article in my my liner notes, but like it was just interesting to see. Because of the popularity of this film, the Times had to like they had to send a critic and be like, well, what's the fuss about? What's this? What's this movie? Five Fingers of Death, which is you know the U.S. title, and it was like it was a genuine uh, phenomenon, even before Bruce Lee. And uh, uh, I think that what's especially striking now is it's like as you probably know, this movie plot-wise wasn't exactly the most original film, King Boxer. Uh, it bears a striking resemblance to a couple of films, including uh, or particularly Jimmy Wang Yu's uh, The Armor, or sorry, the, um, the the Chinese boxer. I'm trying to think what the alternate title is. is the, the Hammer uh, of God. The Hammer of God. I was like, it's not Armor of God, but yeah, Hammer of God. And uh, they're they're both tremendous movies, as you probably know. But like, King Boxer is has a has a emotional resonance that always sneaks up on me like i love king boxer not only because it's a tremendous action movie but it's such a good melodrama that by the time you get to that like that tragic ending where he's you know like just absolutely decimating the bad guy like literally pushing him through brick walls with his you know hard hard won iron palm technique you just get to the point where you're just like you you you're you're I, I've seen it a couple times in theaters and it's like every time I'm just like fucking kill him get him like just like it's just like this big emotional relief and you just realize that's because like right up until that end you're like you're you're being uh there's like a crazy momentum to it that like is built on the back of all these these little tragedies and these scenes that show you that like this isn't just about training this one great fighter this isn't just about him it's like there's a whole bunch of supporting characters and a whole, uh, a whole lot of like great heartstring tugging uh, moments. And it's just such a well-mounted movie too. It's just visually gorgeous. And so, so is um, Hammer of God. I forgot how good that is. But like, if I had to choose uh, between the two, even though I, I think they're both pretty great, I would definitely uh, reluctantly, but still probably wind up choosing King Boxer because it's, uh, it holds up great. <laughs> The I was, melodrama in King Boxer is pretty wonderful. I think that's the thing that differentiates it between between uh, that and Chinese Boxer, in that Chinese Boxer feels way more stripped down to a certain degree, uh, to where it's just almost a straightforward revenge story. It's 90 minutes flat, and it just gets in and out, has that amazing uh, mask sequence that he puts on and takes on that entire like clan of dudes. Um, but then uh, King Boxer adds, like you kind of said, like this, uh, I don't want to call it pedestrian because that's the wrong, that sounds like a negative connotation, but street level, like meta, melodrama, where it actually gets you inside of this microcosm that the story is taking place in. And it really, 
adds just a little more because it's not too much longer than Chinese boxer. I believe this one's only like an hour and 45 minutes, so like 15 minutes longer. But that extra little bit is just a little more texture to it. Uh, and then you just get a whole bunch of kick-ass fights too. Yeah, I was yeah. really, I was blown away. So, sorry, sorry, Simon. Um, go for it, go for it. No, I was just going to say that I, I started with this. I went chronologically when I could with this this set. And um, I, I'm, I'm very much a neophyte when it comes to uh, Shaw Brothers. Like I'd seen a couple like, you know, 36 Chambers with Shaolin and um, 8 Diagram Pole Fighter and a few like in the past. But I was watching this. I think I was 10 minutes in and I texted Jacob. I said, I think this is my new favorite Kung Fu movie. Like I was like that early in this film because I couldn't figure it out. And then. Jacob messaged me. I, I say, he's like, yeah, it's really great. And then he's like, read Simon's liner notes and your like again, your your comments on the melodrama. I was like really engaged on a narrative level in this. Like the the character who's blinded, who's the who's the the um betrayer who becomes blinded, yeah. basically becomes like daredevil in that scene in the darkness. And it's like oh, all so these cool. levels and the woman who's in love with him, but he already has a love is very like Victor Hugo, like very like Les Miserables. It's like again the street level stuff. Like wow, there's a lot going on to kind of bite into and so and then again but you also get like the badass classic like the iron palm technique stuff where and the physicality of like breaking through trees breaking through walls it's just so you get your cake and you get to eat it too it's just all the best things you know all in one it feels like a real movie that is the thing yes. and it's like i i like uh hammer of god a lot but it just you have to the the only limitation it's not really a limitation because he runs with it pretty well is that jimmy wang Yu is is directing and uh i think he's scripting as well that one yeah and uh that's like one of six films that he scripted uh he directed 12 of them if we count man from hong kong and uh it's uh it's just a lot of stuff uh that is ultimately in service of like the star vehicle nature the inevitable star vehicle nature of that film Whereas this one, I think as an ensemble drama, King Boxer is just, it has that extra like timelessness that I would, I would say gives it the, the slight edge because it, it, it really feels like um, an absorbing work that isn't just about like one man can save, one man can fix, which, you know, that doesn't, that it's still a terrific movie, an example of that type of movie, but it's like, uh which would you rather you know rewatch which one has like the the most uh to get out of it it's like it's probably king boxer it's surprising how modern it still feels in a lot of ways while also being incredibly like classical especially in like the sets and the staging and how detailed everything is and it has that very uh like you're almost watching live theater kind of feel to it at times uh, yeah. But then the fights will break out, and the way that uh, the, the violence is staged in King Boxer is kind of amazing. And then is the thing that I kept watching for going forward is just how the camera moved with the performers. It's always all about keeping almost like their entire body in frame. And, like, that's one of the cooler things about watching these old kung fu movies is that, like, if they could do, even if you watch the worst one, if they could do anything, they could film action. And they had like an appreciation for the way that these incredible athletes perform within the frame. Absolutely. Uh, I, I I think what's especially incredible about that is it's like they're, even at the start of this cycle of Shaw Brothers popularity with this type of movie, um, it's very apparent that like 
they're reaching out to experienced, uh, essentially like refugees in terms of filmmakers and, and, and uh, talent was their smartest move because it's like they were able to to create a standard that they were able to sustain for like a while, you know, and uh, it's it's sort of like in some ways like how Hammer films, I think in the 70s, especially like in the mid 70s, have recently like they were always appreciated by a hardcore group of fans. But like people are starting to realize more and more that it's like once you get away from the classic era, there's still some pretty great stuff there. And uh, I think people are also coming to that uh, more and more with the Shaw Brothers set. But like it's really it's there from the start. It's like it's a it's a combination of, um, you know, just consistency and just, you know, magpie brilliance. <laughs> Well, I think that's one of the things that's amazing about the Shaw Scope set, too, is that there's titles in it. Me and Martin were talking about uh, while we were watching Dirty Ho, is that it was like there's titles in it that we instantly knew what they were, like like Five Venoms. You don't have to be a Kung Fu fan necessarily because that movie's so iconic within kind of the pop culture lexicon, like overall, um, yeah. that like you know what that is. Whereas at the same time, I didn't know what Dirty Ho was, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's such a great eclectic mix of like, here's some big ones. Here's Shaolin Temple. Like that's, you know, a cornerstone film that you got. But then here's also uh, the Mighty Peking Man, which is totally out of its mind and we'll get to in a second. But before we kind of move on, I did want to ask you about one movie because I worked in a viewing of, and Martin watched, I believe, like the back half of this with me. Yeah. It's the boxer uh, from Shantung. Ooh, so good. Uh, which is, yeah. And I wanted to ask you because to me, this feels almost like a Sergio Leone movie and how it's just about these two uh, foreign gunfighters who come to town. Well, really one and like his sidekick. And then how they ascend through kind of the criminal underworld, but it has the same kind of mythic feel of something like a Once Upon a Time in America or even Once Upon a Time in the West. And I started calling it uh, Shanghai Scarface because it has such a similar feel to those, both the classical gangster movies and like the Brian De Palma movies. I have to look up specifically which films were on the filmmakers' minds because it was clearly, you know, not made in a vacuum. Um, But what I love about that film in general is the way that it's – the character of it is so much determined uh, by the the entire cast, really, um, but also just, like, the sets, the use of – you know, like, the maximal use of, like – how these areas can can show off and be used to showcase um this titanic rise of this gangster character who uh you never you can never really feel comfortable with because he's always kind of it's always a little too sleazy or a little too like uh proud or full of himself really to to be comfortable around but like he has a real tony montana thing yes tony montana new kung fu Absolutely. And like it's it's tempting throughout to cozy up to him. But even at that ending, which like is almost like sort of doom level of like just brilliant, catastrophic kind of like destruction, uh, you get this sense that it's like there is no redeeming this person. There is no redeeming yeah. the the film. And I always love that because it's like 
uh, it does take like a almost 30s gangster kind of mentality and then apply it into this this kind of uh, you know period the period equivalent of like a working class milieu of you know uh, day laborers and uh, uh, people the tea house you know you know layabouts and and gangsters and uh, it just it makes it feel like uh just a total tour de force of like various genre elements and uh it, it it's commanding from the start i i i i have a lot of love for boxer from chantone all the stuff all the ways that like uh chang Chase camera moves in that like the low angle stuff like gives you this really towering sense of like scope to where the whole movie's almost like looming over you the entire time it's really fucking cool um but th- I did want to ask you about uh, Chang Che in particular is that while he's one of the most prolific directors, I would say, from that <laughs> that that uh, studio, um, at the same time, wasn't he known for being kind of a dick? Yes, he was not an easy person to work with, which is one of many reasons why it's often tempting to sort of dismiss his creative contributions he could be kind of militant um he was not a kindly person at all at the same time like you know he mentored john woo he you know he came up with and he he fostered a lot of young talent uh in terms of the stars including the five venoms and uh he was constantly looking for the next trend and that kind of like uh that's not that's not what we idolize when we think of like a a a a great director who's looking for, you know, and showing their curiosity and their investment in like progressive values or whatever. But like he was uh, a, a really tireless uh, uh, craftsman is the best way I could put it. And uh, he it's also tempting to dismiss him be, just because he did have a falling out with regular choreographer Lau Carlong uh, when I think it was in 75 uh, when they worked on Marco Polo and uh it might have been 76, though. But anyway. The, I believe uh, it's 75 because I believe it's mass, not Masters of Shaolin. Um, the other one, the 88 film, because I was reading the essay that was included in the uh, 88 film disc release of, I believe, I think it is Masters of Shaolin. Okay. Um, where they fell out. And, and that's, yeah, 1975. It was it was actually technically uh, Marco Polo, but like they, okay. yeah, but yeah, uh, there there was uh, that that basically leads a lot of people under well, I don't know understandably, but it leads them to to basically want to choose sides because like in for example a very uh, rare interview from the eighties that Lau Carlong did he kind of dismissed Chang as basically saying that like, oh, he never understood the nature of and the, you know, the the real, uh, you know, martial arts. He, he, didn't, he didn't get it. And like uh, the fact that he was kind of a prickly figure added to the fact that like he was and also the fact that he was so prolific, it just it makes it very easy to like to shrug him off. But like he's he's kind of in the mix and you can't really deal him out without like discrediting a, a, a key uh, collaborator there. Yeah. So why don't we go uh, to the next movie on our list, which is actually another Chang Chang movie, five Shaolin masters. 
Yeah. Why this uh, one? Why well, I, I liked to include something from the Shaolin Temple cycle of films. Speaking of Chang Che and Lau Kar Long's collaborations, and uh, I really like this one because um, it feels like it brings together a lot of their better uh, elements. You know, it's a showcase. It's a uh, you know, it eventually devolves into like a series of five different kung fu matches between like the these five remaining disciples of the Shaolin Temple and their opponents or their respective opponents uh, who are you know hounding them because as in most of these Shaolin Temple films they are being persecuted for their beliefs and you know because they represent uh, a very idealized version of um, you know this considered rebellious religion and you know they're, they're standing up for the 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 Shaolin martial arts and the and, and philosophy that Lao Karlong was so impassioned about. And what's interesting is like this is definitely like, as I said, like a showcase for for you know different fighting techniques. Uh, but it also feels like it has like the Chang Che essence of like you know put on a, a big show, like the spectacular element to it because um, you know. Lau did a number of things separately where he would just show like comedies, especially where he'd be like, I don't take movie making that seriously. Like if it's a good vehicle to show off, you know, what martial arts is all about, like both in terms of like technique, but also, you know, like the spirit of it, according to him, that's great. But like none of this, you should, you shouldn't really take movies as such seriously. And uh, he made a lot of comedies to that effect, uh, including um, Dirty Ho, which we'll talk about, but like, what I like about Five Shaolin Masters is it feels like a really great synergy between Lao and Chang, and it really brings them together in a way that, like, um, I think is maybe the most quintessential collaborate one of their most quintessential collaborations. I like a lot all the other uh, Shaolin uh, Temple films, and we'll even give special mention to this short. Um, um, called i think like five styles of of kung fu that used to play before heroes 2 i'm trying to remember the exact title but it's a 10 minute short and it is like this beautiful uh you know showcase no dialogue just like a pure showcase of like uh technique and and you know performers doing their their moves and uh all across a background of like kind of beautiful negative space and these beautiful colors and it, it almost feels like the martial arts equivalent of gene kelly's invitation to the dance it's like this beautiful almost like dreamlike 10 minute piece and uh that one is like if you want to see what these guys when working together in perfect sync like that and uh, uh five shallon masters for me are, are the two this one really this one really blew me away um especially once they go back to the temple to, to train again yeah. Um, and they're all like focusing on, okay, here's the way we're going to beat um, our enemies, our specific enemies. We're each going to pick out, um, you know, our, the one we're going to face off against. And what I like is this one also shows the difficulty of what they're about to do um, because some, some Kung Fu I've watched in the, in the past, like the lead character is like unstoppable, you know, and, and this one definitely made it feel like, Hey, we're probably going to die. And it's very, there's a very like wild bunch moment. They all kind of look at each other. Like, the best we can do is basically distract these people while everyone else goes to the red pavilion. 
and it has this like very like they look at each other and then when they march out with the coolest fucking score i think i've ever heard in a kung fu movie that dun 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 is so epic and like leone and badass and like they're they're in their white their white outfits now they're walking through the water i'm like just give me more of that all day every day i this one i thought was fantastic there's a there's a good reason why Chang was often compared to Peckinpah, uh, and it's not just the slow motion. It is because they share that very fatalistic sense of romance, and uh, yes. you know it's 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 that's a very Chang touch that you'd mentioned with the idea that like they are kind of they have a very um, a very strong sense that like their chances aren't great. They are you know they're still gonna uh, they have it doesn't mean they don't have confidence in their abilities, but like they they know the odds are are not with them, and uh, there's a almost gallows humor to it that like I I really like, and uh, that definitely feels like a reflection of of Chang, and you know it will go on in many of his other movies as well after he worked with Lao, so that's a that's a very directorial signature on a filmmaker that a lot of people are like, eh, he 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 just copied other people. It's like yes and no. It's like a bit of both. <laughs> now, before we kind of move forward, I did want to a- ask you about, like, uh, to jump back a little bit uh, with the boxer from Shantung and actually Chinese boxer and king boxer to a certain degree. The thing that I found interesting about boxer from Shantung was how our lead characters were immigrants because a lot of the time immigrants in the in these movies were bad guys. No. Frankly, a lot of the times they were like Japanese henchmen. And I wondered like why that keeps popping up. Like I know it's it's mentioned in the notes, but I wondered if you had any insight into it. Well, there's a lot of nationalism that stems from all the popularity of uh films like the trend setting popularity I should add of uh some of the early Bruce Lee stuff, but also, you know, Jimmy Wang Yu's brand of nationalism and stuff like uh the Chinese boxer and uh, one arm boxer and things like that. Uh, but it's also striking to note that a lot of these guys and a lot of these movies were shot in Taiwan. Um, after a certain point, you know, Chang moves to Taiwan to set up studios. So it's like they were themselves uh, foreigners. And like one of the reasons why there was tension between him and Lao is like, he's like, you should come with me to Taiwan. And Lao was like, I actually kind of want to teach martial arts in America and he got dissuaded from that because, like, he just genuinely didn't see the point in making movies. He was like, "What's what's what 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 would that what good would that do?" Like, movies is like it's like it's nothing. It's he, he couldn't think of what uh un, un, what, what what good it would do until he like he talked with Mona Fong, the Shaw Brothers producer, and she was like, "It's like was like what would it take to get you to 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 keep making keep working with us?" It's like, "Well, I want to direct the movies as well." I don't I. And I'd want to make movies that like really reflect what I give a shit about, which is, you know, some stuff that would would glorify real what he considered real heroes and real martial arts and real Shaolin uh, techniques. And uh, so there's a weird mix of uh, ident- almost like crisscrossing identities there because, you know, Chang was definitely moving towards wherever would let him have like a sort of greater autonomy, which was Taiwan. And uh, Lao was, you know, indifferent. He, 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 but he's even willing to go to just fuck off to America. And uh, I think that just shows to go you that like there was, even in the antagonism of the Japanese characters, um, 
there's a real sense that like national pride is is not a a, a stable concept or you know something that uh, in a lot of movies can be taken as anything more than like a plot device. Um, I'm glad you brought up uh, Lao and how protective he was over martial arts because in your notes you note that too with uh, Dirty Ho is that one of the reasons he wanted to make that movie was simply because he also wanted to show people that martial arts were fun and could be funny too. Yeah. <laughs> it was like just putting another kind of positive spin and representation on, on uh, the art form that he was in love with, um, which honestly sounds kind of pretentious when you're reading about it in hindsight, but it's also still pretty cool. I mean, he, he definitely started like, with like a, co- a couple comedies i know shaolin mantis is one but i'm trying to remember was it spiritual spiritual something or other his was his first movie uh and that was a comedy as a director uh he he basically was was always up front and uh about the fact that like he he, he was kind of cocky too in that sense because he was like he was making movies where he's like what well, this i could do this it's like i could i could give you a straight drama but i could do all the stuff that you guys like but as like a comedy that like is not you know reverent or you know rooted in you know heroics like something more straightforward like the the 36 chamber films like the the second 36 chamber film is just a straight up comedy it's just like there's there's a lot of stuff and and it's it's a comedy at the expense of people who want to see um Gordon Liu's character in the first one as this like you know, idolic kind of figure that you must revere. You know, like Gordon Liu comes back and he basically tries somebody who's trying to chase after his his old other characters' shoes because he's not playing uh, Santi, the uh, the the main character anymore. He's playing somebody who's mistaken for him. So there's like this whole thing where he he never really wanted people to come away from his movies uh, feeling like seduced or like getting comfortable with like a formula. And I always, I always kind of admired the ballsiness of that because he was always just like never satisfied with, um, you know, his success. It never struck me where even though he did like three other 36 Chamber films, he just never strikes me as somebody who's like would be satisfied with like what what worked and be like, well, I'm just gonna do that again. It's like no, he's gonna do Mad Monkey Kung Fu. He's gonna do um, Dirty Ho. He's gonna do any number of movies. Uh, Shaolin Mantis, they're they're all kind of, um, some of them are kind of goofier than others, but they all feel like his way of being like, I could do all that. It's just with without the uh, without the the the, uh, the sense that this what what was done should be a formula. You know, it should be it should be reflect the uh, the inclusivity and the the philosophy of Shaolin as he understand it. Now, speaking of comedies, let's get to the real crown jewel of the box set, The Mighty Peking Man. Um, I mean, if you watch this movie, like, you get it, like, 100% why you picked it, because it's totally out of its mind. But how about you try and describe what this fucking thing is, because it's absolutely out of its mind. This movie is basically celluloid laughing gas. It is a film that, like, is... Well, it was originally released in America's Goliathon, 
And uh, then it was re-released and got Second Life with the uh, considerable help of uh, Quentin Tarantino and his Rolling Thunder line of films. And um, that was in like 1999, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, in the 90s. Uh, okay. And and my 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 thing is, it's it's always interesting to see Shaolin or not Shaolin, sorry, Shaw Brothers fans basically talk about the canon the canon of these films as if it's you know been set for more than say. 20 years 25 years you know a lot of these movies were initial hits or you know considered like um essential shall we say shaw brothers films um until later when guys like the rizza and tarantino uh helped to establish uh the shaw brothers as a brand so to speak uh internationally at least you could certainly uh, find consensus if you were to talk with a number of um, Hong Kong or Chinese or Asian fans of these films. And I bet they would know, for example, the five Venoms, they'd be the five weapon guys and things like that. Uh, but like at the same time, there, there was the idea that like, for example, we have classic Shaw Brothers films like Five Venoms, um, which wasn't in, uh, as big of a hit uh, or as a cult hit uh, as it was initially or... Um, any number of other films after that. People now know, for example, uh, the movie Crippled Avengers, which was originally sold as like Return of the Five Venoms. People know that movie is maybe even a little better um, and is is also just great. But like the the formation of the canon is very hard. And a movie like Mighty Peking Man kind of obliterates that because it's like this is a movie that like when critics like Roger Ebert, who when he first saw it, he was like, that was goofy as shit, and it was great. Um, not in as many words, obviously. But um, the, it, it's basically... Mighty Peking Man is a great outlier in every sense. It is a ripoff of the 76 uh, Guillermo uh, King Kong De Laurentiis uh, remake. And it was part of a very, very minor wave of Kong exploitation at that time. And it is maybe what? one of the most endearing examples of that what's the other con exploitation that was big at that point it was like ape but it was like a dot p dot e ape 3d yes yeah ape uh, 3d i have that on that kino lorber disc i still haven't taken out of the packaging yet i was really very lucky to see harry guero's 3d print of uh Ooh. ape 3d at the three dementia program and when they got to the, the iconic moment where he flips you the bird it's like <laughs> yes cinema that's, I that's, saw Harry's uh, Dynasty print since we're yes. on the, the, the subject of that. That was quite awesome. Uh, were you at that X-Fest screening for that? No, ah. I saw it at his garage house thing. Ah. Yeah, cool. that he has it. But it's like, um, to get back on track, and speaking of Exhumed Films, uh, that's the way that I saw Mighty Peking Man for the first time. Is I It was at the second or third 24-hour fest, which the three of us obviously just hung out at and met each other for the first time together. But, like, I didn't know what the fuck this was, and then it played. And, like, watching that movie with an audience is just, like, a total steamroller just enters the building and flattens everybody because it's it's so out of its mind. Like... The the lead is like a Swedish. She's she's Swiss. I, is she Swiss? I didn't I didn't look her up or anything after I watched the movie, but yeah, she's Swiss. 
you weren't you weren't inspired by her uh let's say illy fitted uh bikini top they didn't even try to cover her nipple in this movie they were just like fuck it like at a certain point it's yeah. just like let it's it hang just, out it just nips out at a certain point and then because it's danny lee from the killer too right he's the one yeah. but i love his storyline is that he's a man who gets cupped so hard that he goes to the jungle and finds himself a white woman who can't speak any well really can't speak she just speaks in like grunts and groans and weird like primitive language and then finds out that she's basically in a weird relationship with bigfoot slash kong the ugliest, the oh, he's so up, gross. Mighty Peking man is the ugliest fucking. Can we call him a kaiju? I don't even know if he counts, but he's like ugliest Kong. We'll say cousin. Uh, and then it came to the barbecue. I would say Ape 3D has it beat just because Ape 3D has the the monster has this crazy nipple hair that is so <laughs> distracting. Swear to God. It would just be in 3D, and you'd be like, what is going on there? Is he all right? Wait, but, the nipple uh, hairs in 3D? Oh, no, but, like, just seeing oh. that in 3D, you'd just be distracted. You'd be like, they should have made that a special effect. It's coming at you, right? No, but anyway, but Mighty Peaking Band is also great, like, because the elements that you're talking about, there is a genuine sense of, like, as usual with Kong, like, a sense of disillusionment with everything that's considered civilized and urbane, and to the point where, like, when they get back, it's not just Hong Kong and the city as a concept that it, they're clearly objecting to. It's the sense of, like, Hong Kong as a modernizing space that's, like, you know, ruled by showbiz and, you know, just this sense of, like, super, like, just, like, institutionalized superficiality and, and progress. And it just builds to the point where when Mighty Peking Man has to, like, inevitably, you know, make his doomed attempt to to get his woman back it's just it's sad and it's amazing because like this whole time you're watching this movie where it's it's light and goofy and and silly uh right up through the the romantic theme of do you think i'm in do you think i'm in love so awesome oh my god uh but yeah it's despite all that like that ending just levels you anyway because it's like it's after just you know moonshine proof levels of like hammy melodrama and like cynicism and then suddenly it's a kaiju movie again and he's just you know taking out helicopters and you know trying his best to to make it in a world he never made and it's it's delightful it's it's ridiculous it's you know how could you resist well, <laughs> I like all the miniature <laughs> stuff is like oh, yeah. uh from the to- like didn't you know in the liner notes that a bunch of the Toho guys who worked on Godzilla stuff like came over and did a bunch of the miniature effects for when he goes on the rampage at the end? Yeah, and that's that wasn't uncommon because like Shawscope, for example, was a jury rigged Toho scope in the same right. equipment and same cinematographers to help to establish that. Um, so yeah, it, that was a, a fairly. Uh, typical uh or at least not unusual uh move and uh i think there are a couple scenes where one of the designers the creatures designers is in the suit uh at least for one or two of the fire stunts and uh that's uh it's always fun to to watch it just because you just look <laughs> at this guy and just like 
part of you is like, oh, I'd love to, like, I'd love to be on the set when this is filmed. And the other part is, then you're just like, but I want to be in that suit. No, I don't know. Um, it's a great movie, and uh, it's 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 a it's one that like more and more people once they get over the silliness of 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 the film, or just the uh, the the obvious uh, amateurish in some ways nature of the filmmaking, it's very easy to get into because it's it's such a charmer. I love the way he kills um, a lot of dudes by stomping on them. Like he kills like, eight <laughs> people that way, and like half his foot, so he he doesn't cover them all the way. So you see the guys like kind of like jerk in response to being crushed by this giant, you know, ape man. Or I love um, when he kills the the villainous man who's trying to rape uh, the, the woman. Like he grabs him, literally pops him. Like just squeezes him so hard, he just like crushes him in his hand. Like there's some really like stuff you don't see in like a more chaste king kong movie you know yeah. like he really fucks people up in this movie it's 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 a movie that is defined by uh you know temporary insanity or like yes. a better phrase um, and uh, one of the other things that i love about it too to, to go back to your comment about how it is again still keeping with almost the identical King Kong story beats right down to like, we're rejecting the idea of modernity and bringing Kong and uh, the uh, Fay Ray, I guess, stand in back to America or in this case, Hong Kong. But like, um, I like that on the boat. He's like, you need to, to do, cause is her name Evelyn Craft? I think is the, yeah, the actress's yeah, yeah, name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he looks at her and is like, you need to wear something more decent. And then proceeds to pull out like a straight up skin tight leather. Snake skin. Out, like snake skin outfit that she, like she gets into it. And you're <laughs> like, I don't know how that's any better, man. Like that seems more garish almost than the, the. Tar- Tarzanian Jane costume that she was, or Jane bikini she was in before. Garish, but honest. Not at all. It's true. And then she's very honest, strips it off and throws it out the boat's window. What a woman. I got to tell you, maybe the perfect woman. <laughs> nice. But next we have uh, another, well, actually one more thing before Mighty Peking Man is I looked it up. Is he the same director as uh, the Oily Maniac? I believe. Oh, uh, uh, Homing Hua. Oh. Let me check. Yeah, uh, I believe. I think so. it might be. I think it might be. He Which was, also he was... has Danny Lee in it too. Yeah. Yes, you're right. Uh, and he he's somebody that like I'm still. He's got such a a, a huge. Or he's got a decent sized filmography, and every time I watch something by him. Um, or Chor Yuen, and, like, I don't intend to watch it, but I, I'm like, oh, yeah, that guy's great. Um, Oily Maniac's another good example. That one takes a moment to, to really kick off, but, like, uh, it's 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 also a really uh, strong example of how, like, a lot of these Shaw Brothers gems that are being uh, celebrated with these great releases from Blu-ray companies and stuff are, are stuff that, like, is not the same type of, you know, martial arts films. It's not all, you know, cut from the same mold, so to speak. And uh, I love that. There's some stuff in volume two that furthers that idea. And uh, I think it's it's amazing to see people realize it's like Shaw Brothers were, weren't just one thing at all. They were, you know, all over the place. 
Yeah, I just ordered a bunch. I ordered Oily Maniac and Black Magic 1 and 2 mm. of the, the UK, like, 88 films discs, and I can't wait to get those. Because to your point, um, like, what we're doing right now could almost become an entire series to where, like, you almost do one that's like, here's these kung fu movies that everybody knows. But then here's an entirely separate thing about, like, horror movies that aren't as celebrated um like what's the other one that i just found that i'm waiting for the price to go down before i order a copy oh the seeding of a ghost there's another ah, yeah. one. Um, one but but there's like a whole like fistful of horror films that you could do too to where you're like they're their own thing but you don't hear about them the same way that you hear about like say you know j horror with ringu and stuff like that it's like I'm waiting for those movies to be reclaimed as well. I've been trying to to at least rec- get people to recognize, for example, certain filmmakers' names by, like, I think my first piece for Fangoria was all about Chi Hung Kuei, the guy who did Boxer Zomen. It was. Um, and Hex and stuff. And uh, I, I, I keep trying to get a, a corresponding film program of stuff like that, as well as some of the horror stuff, which leans towards um, Agatha Christie uh mystery stuff but the reason why it's not as like ready it to to sell and is not like a thing is that like shaw brothers and horror in general were like there was no existing really tradition they they made it up like uh chi hung did that with like hex which was a big hit um but like there was stuff like human lanterns or uh curse of evil which uh he, uh, Chi Hong Kui also did. Uh, there's just a general sense that like these were movies where he's taking existing elements from like other genres and like applying it in a way that like it was sort of um, creating a new hybrid version of horror. But like there was there was no existing audience for it. He was they were they they were making it up and making the audience up for it as they went. And so like. There was no uh, canon or no standards by which people could, like, see it as, like, a movement or a genre. And uh, that is still taking a moment to get people on board with stuff like uh, Human Lanterns or Killer Snakes or, uh, you know, Corpse Mania, which, you know, with a name like Corpse Mania, you think it sells itself. And yet. (laughs) Yeah, it's like Velveeta Cheese. You're just like, I'm ready. Well, exactly. we'll have to talk more about uh, Shaw Brothers Horror in the future because it's something I'm jonesing for now. Uh, <laughs> but let's let's get back to uh, Chang uh, Chang Che and Five Deadly Venoms, arguably the most iconic movie in the set, maybe. It has become that for sure. Yeah. It, it, it's it's become a. Uh, uh, a real calling card film because of the trend chasing elements that Chang was such so good at. He was like in in other people in, in lesser filmmakers' hands, like you would be like, oh, these guys just grasping for a new trend with these five young performers uh, who are you know pre-sold through their you know animal personalities and and masks and things. But the movie itself, every time I rewatch it, is just like. It's stranger and more vivid for all the ways that it tries to not only chase trends, but to kind of set them and to make them understandable through like uh, a murder mystery subplot, which is weirdly like involved and like 
there's just a lot of uh, material there that often gets ignored because the more iconic moments of that movie are straight up action mayhem and they're wonderful. But like, there's a lot of that movie, which is like, well, who are the venoms? Who are the good venoms? Who are the bad venoms? Who can you trust? Who's the main character? Who's the, you know, who's the, what's the story? And, uh, there's a lot of uh, feeling their way around in this film. And uh, I think that's kind of why people in more recent years have favored some of the, the follow-ups that Chang did with the Venoms, uh, especially Crippled Avengers, which is such an ass kicker and is on the second one. Uh, because by then they knew who the unit's members were and they knew like, uh you know things that they to, they wanted to, to do in terms of their the interplay of their their moves um and they knew certain things about like what what played to their strengths and um i think that you know crippled avengers may be a more clean burning film but like five venoms is tremendous because it is so much movie and it just it feels like um it's everybody involved is on the cusp of 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 a breakthrough in some ways and uh it's a it's such a vital movie and like the the ending no matter how long and how padded parts of that film feel by the time you get to that ending it's just pure you know gorgeous slow motion balletic bloodletting you know and you could definitely see you could definitely imagine a young john woo watching that and being like what is that and how do i make it like that is just a pure proto woo movie you know it's funny you say that because I was watching. I'm like, is that Mad Dog? And I <laughs> yes. like kind of freaked out because like my favorite Wu character is Mad Dog from Hard Boiled, like hands down. I think he's the coolest fucker. Like that shot where he throws the grenades and then is like kind of scurrying below with his Uzi, his Mac 10 when it explodes above him. And I see him here. I'm like, oh, that's one of the. He is like in the end, like the lead hero. It, it, he kind of becomes that in this. And I looked him more up about him. Like he came very similar, like Jackie Chan from like the Chinese opera and from like gymnastics and they use him to their full extent. Like he does some crazy flips in this movie. I love his um, gecko style of like sticking to the wall and you can see the, you can see the wires pretty easily, but I love like the way they use him physically in this movie. Yeah. The acrobats and of the, 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 that made up the five venoms uh, were really six venoms, but like these guys were really just remarkable for the way that like, not just the way that they they worked with each other, uh, but just the way that they had a very clear sense and a very clear idea of like how to uh, get the most out of their training, their operatic uh, school training, to uh, create these great set pieces and these great fights. And uh, you could tell that like they loved working with each other because it's like their fights all have a of a of a flavor to them. They they don't feel like exhibitions basically they're they're real um plot focused in some ways in ways that i think a lot of people are still like kind of downplaying when they talk about these movies because like these movies do each have their own character i mean i I, crippled avengers always comes to mind not just because it's on the same disc uh but it's just it's a it's a really good example of how like despite similarities in tone and uh some characterizations these fights they never feel like it's like it's just like that one it's just he's wearing a different wig or a different outfit or whatever uh you you really get the sense that like each fight and each scene 
serves not only the plot but serves the movie in ways that like ultimately have come to define them i mean the action scenes in uh five venoms alone are are iconic for for you know various reasons <laughs> well in that intro with all of the the monologuing from the master and then where we meet every venom it, again to bring up your your john woo comparison is that it's like they're like doing all of this crazy like training acrobatics kicking things and like slow motion and stuff and you do because i thought about peck and paw and then i didn't even think about john woo uh, again because especially the one where the guy just high kicks that one board and you're like yes this is what movies were made to do um but at the same time uh, i guess it's also uh, worth noting like all the tarot the tarantino influences that are kind of peppered throughout the box set because this obviously on the kill bill movies and then you have uh, king boxer literally has the siren that was sampled for kill bill as well mighty Peking man is one of the movies that he put out uh, with rolling thunder what were the other movies that he did he did switchblade sisters i remember and then detroit 9000 Right? Chunking Express was also Chunking Express, yeah. that's right, yeah. Um, and, uh, and there was one weird one called like Curdled or something. If my my memory serves that they put out. Um, but he and, go ahead, go ahead, Jacob. No, you go. I'll just say you and I also noticed. I was watching the boxers from Shang Tung with you. Um, the end sequence is so like crazy eighty eight. like that just continuous like wave after wave and destroying like everything around you obviously with your hero dying um your main character dying but in a very similar way yeah well and like uh it's not part of the set but chinese boxer that one main set piece is the one that feels like the the dry run for the house of blue leaves sequence um because it's so fucking good uh yeah. and then i mean dirty ho having uh gordon Liu in it too who would show up yeah, obviously in Kill Bill and stuff like it's all you watch this and you go, oh, yeah, this, you know, not only on a, a, as being basically a, a great as I kind of described it to, to Martin, it's almost like a college course in a box. Like you <laughs> yeah. literally can just run through and learn a shitload of stuff about this period of film history that like us, you know, it might be a blank spot in your knowledge and you can use it that way. Or you can also watch it and be like, this uh, helped shape not only its own pop culture, but like American and, and world pop culture as well, because you have everything from like Tarantino pulling from it to where you uh, mentioned earlier, like RZA is sampling some of these movies and putting them in uh, the, the great Wu-Tang albums. Yeah, and uh, there's a, a lot of Wu-Tang influence that I feel like you know, even though it often gets circulated every time, you know, you know, the RZA has something new going on. So they're just like, tell us, explain to they always have him go through like his formative influences and stuff. But like the Venoms and five Venoms in particular uh, definitely benefited from Wu-Tang exposure, shall we say. But like it's uh, it's a great sign as well that like uh, the canon is also formed uh, among, you know, the people who whoever was basically going to to 42nd street and theaters in new york in general but like uh drive-in theaters it's like it's it's a it's a weird thing because it's like 
the tastemakers, uh, tastemaking filmmakers are still kind of, um, I think in a lot of ways living in not only Tarantino's shadow, but the, the, the RZA and a lot of these other guys' shadows because, like, they have a lot, they have this, this, this keen sense of their own sensibility that, like, has really become part of a, a, a certain kind of pop culture, a real cornerstone, if you will. And uh, I think Five Venoms, the way that that became the Shaw Brothers, uh, if not the Shaw Brothers signature film, is really striking because it's like, we now recognize a lot of the elements as being almost as they've since become formulaic, but like there's also just a lot of eccentric weirdness that doesn't travel with it from this movie in terms of like, like I said, the mystery plot and stuff like that. And uh, I, I always find that like a movie like this, one of the, the, the great things about it um, is seeing how like a movie that we, we all think we know, and we all think we, 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 appreciate and see for what it is it's like it's always kind of surprising um every time you rewatch it well and uh, to bring it back to your initial note uh, when you were talking about getting involved in the not only with the project but with the kung fu cinema in general is that we'd be remiss without mentioning like grady hendrix yes. uh, writing books like these fists uh, break bricks which is coming out soon and then also all of his work uh, programming and bringing these movies again uh, to new eyeballs and stuff and really kind of uh, infecting another strain of pop culture or another generation I guess we should say yeah I should have mentioned him by name when I talked about the New York Asian Film Festival guys because Grady, Paul Casey, Brian Nas, Garan Topolovic, uh, Rest in Peace Dan Kraft, uh, uh mark walkow they've all and and the current guys sam jamia and david wylance they're are really incredible leaders uh in terms of like you know helping to shape people and to get them to look out for stuff that they wouldn't think to look for and uh helping to develop taste that uh i think we we shouldn't uh let that kind of uh, the, their help informing that can go to to the wayside i i always try especially if I can with every new New York Asian film festival or just in general to try to like to keep up with that stuff because like they're always on the cutting edge and uh, I I'm always in awe of, of the, that kind of uh, pop cultural advocacy, I guess. Yeah. It's evangelism in its best form in the, for like the arts uh, because there's also like an idea, like if I were to talk uh, to my dad about Kung Fu movies he would have the pretty stereotypical old school response of like, oh, they were all just shitty things that filled like, you know, these little low rep theaters and were poorly dubbed and were mostly like jokes to people. But it's like it's because of like sets like this and programmers and writers it's like you. Uh, it's all about reclaiming the movies as like actual art forms, you know, and showing like these weren't just like janky things that were dubbed and, and sold to american markets i mean some of those descriptors are true in some cases but i mean overall there's a lot of both like art and cultural context to be mined from these yeah and i think it's striking that like moma had that retrospective of lao car long films and i think that that was because of a couple of reasons uh you know, he does have the the background as a as a choreographer, which shows you the inherent craft involved. 
But there's also the philosophical dimension of Lau's motivation for doing these movies that makes him an easier way to show that like these are martial arts films. These are these are these are not just you know um, happy meals or you know not just something to to uh, some cheap entertainment. You know, um, they definitely are in, in ways you know like cheap and entertaining but like then there's also a lot of genre stuff going on in it and a lot of you know formulaic storytelling and things like that but like but that's the nature of pop art and uh it's it's just it's it's cool to see that like there is a greater acceptance of that by looking at i think uh the personalities of the people who made them and um what motivated them and and sort of putting that human face on the artists who made these films because it can get overwhelming especially when you're looking at uh stuff that has become so clearly defined by genre tropes and conventions and you know you know dubbing and and things like that well and it's kind of like i do find uh the schism between the way that kung fu movies are appreciated and giallo movies are appreciated really interesting because like giallo movies for a lot of like cult cinema knuckleheads are like that's like a revered subgenre you know like people will talk to you about the tropes of giallo uh the masters of it this and that when like if you spend a lot of time watching giallo movies like i do a lot of it sucks. Like, you watch it, and you're like, ah, this is interesting, but, like, it's only really, in, like, a for heads only kind of scenario when you approach a lot of the deeper cuts, or, like, if you dive head first in, like, an Umberto Lenzi, like, box set, like, you're, you're really falling down the rabbit hole at that part. Like, but where these movies, you watch them, a lot of those movies are were very crude and made mostly to, like, uh, cash in on a trend that was happening within like Italian exploitation cinema. But when you watch these, even like the lowest grade ones, you're like, there's a lot of artistry on hand, but they're not talked about at least it, it, at the, let's say the volume that these other subgenres are. And I, I, I really hope that box sets like this will help kind of uh, push forward a way of thinking about the movie. Yeah, I hope Simon. So. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, please. I interrupted. No, I was just gonna say that for a person like me who doesn't have a lot of experience with this, you know, these films, like I think what the box set does, and also the five that you chose, is starts to like define and show, like you said, the differences between these films because you stare at the Shaw Brothers from without, you know, from the outside, and it can kind of wash together as that you're like, oh my God, it's going to be this like, like this very amorphous, like almost like this very homogenous thing. You know, yeah. I think from the outside, it can feel that way. And then you go in, you're like, wow, like, like you said, there's filmmakers, there's performers, there's producers, the choreographers, everybody inside there has something to say. Um, and there's subgenres even inside the type of films and, and there's narrative thrusts of, of mysteries or melodrama that are there too. And, I think that I've been, I'm one of those people probably who's been unfair to these films. Not that I had anything against them, but I just didn't realize the the definition and the the minutia of like the Shaw Brothers types of films. And I, I had a question too I wanted to ask you that I was reading about. Like also the Shaw Brothers, 
were somewhat vertically integrated because they had their own theaters like in Chinatowns across yes. from, like in North America, which is super interesting that it wasn't just a grindhouse mentality. It's like, no, like they were being programmed for um, you know, immigrant viewers in America. They were would-be moguls for sure. And um, I think uh, what was especially striking about them is like, um, you know, like Hammer to some extent, there was a real sense that like they wouldn't just be um, a studio. And for a while they, they were, before they, they hit it big with martial arts films, Shaw Brothers, like Hammer, before they did horror, they were really kind of trying to be a general studio. And they ultimately became defined by genre pictures, or at least, you know, particular genres. And uh, But really, the they were a, an attempt to sort of establish themselves as like a mini-major, almost, in terms of their, their stature. And the theaters is a great example of that, because they really tried to... Uh, corner a certain market of Hong Kong filmmaking and to you know the fact that like we are talking about them then and we we all instantly recognize the uh the Shaw Brothers uh theme song uh when we see the logo and uh you know it's not only good branding but it was just a sign that like these were people who um the trends like with a lot of studio heads were a way to establish and remind people of the signature so it's like there's a lot of film below the line, people below that, and we're still catching up with that. And it makes it very hard because that's the way that you establish um, sort of a pop culture recognition that goes beyond uh, uh, the initiated, really. I mean, like, it's 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 funny because, like, I, I am glad that there are um, guys like David Boardwell and so many others have really helped to uh, establish a very rigorous and serious discussion of uh, craft. And uh, I, I think that, that that also in turn helped to inspire so many others. And uh, I'm just really grateful to see that like the ways that we talk about these films are not just limited to, you know, like the effect driven and kind of like, you know, just basically describe and, and try to uh, cheerlead for them because like now we're able to actually look at them um and and do a little more and, and and do a little more contextualizing even though i i have to say some of it in in some corners still feels a little dry some of the writing that's on it is either like two extremes of like either fanboyish reverence or or kind of dry academic writing that like if i didn't know these films and i read these pieces i'd be like jesus that sounds boring why would i watch that <laughs> but like finding that middle ground is like that's the goal the goal is to really uh make them sound like they're fun to watch because they are uh and also show how that fun is fostered through a sense of like real genuine uh craftsmen and, and personality that is often subsumed by the genre stuff you know and to your port martin uh with the vertical integration uh part is that it reminded me what they did with like establishing their own theaters reminded me also of what Canon tried to do during the late 80s and early 90s when they bought out that UK-based uh, theatrical, I think it was Virgin Theaters at the time. I'd have to look it up. But they more or less tried to have their own uh, venues that they could uh, display their movies in and more or less own. And, well, that obviously all ended in tears for them. But 
did much better for the Shaw brothers. Definitely. Um, the uh, They hung on a lot longer than I think a lot of people would have expected, and uh, they continued through the grace of their, their recurring filmmakers like Chang Chen, Chor Yuen, and all these jobbers who, like, were also just kind of inspired uh, collaborators and leaders. Like, they were able to, like, just put out a, a pretty uh, terrific canon or, or body of work, really, because canon is, like, you know, we're still winking that. Uh, the, the, the key thing is that there's such a, a, a great wealth of these movies to, to still dig into because of, of that kind of would-be uh, attempt to dominate the market is uh, is exciting, you know? Sure. Oh, there's still a, certain, a, a mercenary element to it. Yeah. Um, but it's business, so you kind of try and understand it through that, uh, let's say, prism. Now, one last movie we have is Dirty Ho, the best title in the, in the set. Uh, but honestly, if I'm going to be 100% honest, the movie that I kind of struggled with the most out of all of these, I think part of it is because it is a, a pretty broad comedy and I just wasn't clicking with the humor itself. But why, why Dirty Ho? Why pick this film? Well, uh, as we discussed, it has that sense of humor that uh, really Lau showed you that like he could do all of his signature stuff and in a totally different tonal register. But it's also, I think, obviously in some ways, not just in terms of set pieces, but in execution in a lot of ways, like maybe the best of his comedies because like the performers, the story, it has like a... Um, a focus that a lot of the other comedies that he did don't have. And uh, it, the, the, I could just think of a couple of great scenes that like, it really charms you into submission, that movie. It's it's a movie that teaches you or, or forces you to accept it as it is, like a lot of his comedies do, because I gotta be honest, like you said, he's a very broad sense of humor. There'll be stuff where like characters with buck teeth or like weird, like physical deformities or stuff going on, like, they're considered like the joke and they wind up fighting with the protagonist. That was a recurring thing because like he, you know, for him, uh, gags was obviously a big part of, uh, you know, setting up scenes and, uh, and, and, and showing like what you could do with, with filmmaking. And it's also, I think really a reflection of his limited interest in filmmaking and how like he was like, I, he, he had a, he had a great, knack for it and he had a great sense of you know what would look good and what would uh be interesting to film and, and what should be on film uh but in a comedy like dirty ho it's a very anomalous um gem because it's it's a movie that like you can't really imagine its success being replicated you can't really imagine like a dirty ho 2 or like uh, a series of you know django-esque ripoffs like you know you know, get the dirty hoe or something and the it's just dirty, it's it's dirty go, hoe goes to brazil yeah yeah exactly the it's it's it just it wouldn't happen and um i i think it's it's what's great about dirty hoe is that like it's so good at being the freaky weird little oddity that it is that shaw brothers fans have come to it and accepted it 
And uh, I think it actually just won a reader's poll. Oh, actually, no, it didn't win the reader's poll. It, it was beaten. It got all the way to the finals uh, where it got beaten by a hair by Mighty Peking Man. And uh, but that shows you that, like, fans are 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 really those two movies that, like, I don't think anybody would 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 um, especially like unless they're hardcore fans. I don't think those would be considered like the defining Shaw Brothers films. Like these are not movies that like are iconic in the same way that Five Venoms, mm-hmm. King Boxer, mm-hmm. any number of other one one arm shorts and things like that. Like they they don't have that kind of uh, essential quote unquote quality. But then again, that's why in there there's you know only so much you can do with describing stuff and limiting it to like the essential stuff so it's it's so great to see that as more people watch dirty ho more people have come to respect that like there's a space not only a space for that but like there's a an amazing kind of expansive quality to the filmmaking here that shows you that like it wasn't just you know the same old stuff over and over again there was room for like you know weird gender swapping con man comedy and like uh, a sense of like playful, uh, almost to the point of like defensive playfulness in this movie. Like it, it really just shows to go you like there's there's a lot uh, in the under the Shaw brothers umbrella, so to speak. Yeah, I think something that uh, Jacob brought up when we were watching it, we watched it together. It was like maybe because I also I had some trouble getting into parts of this film. Was maybe I'm too early in my education of the Shaw brothers to appreciate. Some of the humor um, that maybe some of this humor is a sort of send up of itself of like their style and what you expect from that type of film is that maybe I'm just too early to kind of get some of the in jokes, maybe. But there are moments that are kind of, I think, do transcend that of like trying to get like there's two scenes in a row where it's he's meeting with someone who's obviously trying to kill him, but they like neither one wants to let on that like that's what's happening. Like the whole, yeah. the whole, the, the wine drinking scene. For instance, yes you know oh, like so oh and after you it's like that that works you know i understand what they're kind of trying to do there um but doing it a, a second time with the next scene i'm like okay like i might not need one more of these um is a screwball uh element to it that like it it really commands your attention because it really yeah. it really boils down to just the sheer joy of like in a great dance number you watch these performers move in sync and just kind of shrug it off because it's like they know that what they're doing is like a hard rehearsed routine but like in the moment that you're watching you're 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 watching something incredible because like that wasn't even the one of the only takes for that probably but like there's just like all this this uh lightning in a bottle quality to these scenes and the fights that like you're just you just look at it like the 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 wine tasting scene is just it's incredible because like these they have a uh, um uh, an, a, a sense of not sp- they don't seem uh, so effortless but they genuinely seem like they're uh they have a, a sense of joy to them and there's a there's a pleasure in watching just watching performers uh at the peak of or at a peak of inspiration do their thing you know. What it reminded me a lot, uh, the thought I kept having while me and Martin were watching it was there's a reason that John Woo cites like funny face a lot when talking about his own movies and how like for these guys, these were 
dances. They were ballets. There were things that they were essentially staging. And there was a challenge to it of like, let's watch these incredible performers just move and, and pull off this choreographed number to your point within the frame. Um, and it, it almost captures that vibe of like an old Hollywood musical at times of just the gags, them dancing with each other with the Kung Fu. And then it turns by the end into just a full tilt action movie. Cause that last fight, I mean, regardless of whether or not you find the rest of the movie funny, the last like 20 minutes or so of that movie just absolutely rip. Cause that final like showdown is awesome. Yeah, I was super happy that we were able in that Shaw Brothers Spectacular program to show this because it's like, you know, you had to to balance the stuff that we all, or that's the thing, I assumed people already knew and um, with stuff that like was a little closer to my heart, like Super Inframan and uh, Holy Flame of the Martial World, but like showing Dirty Ho, I was like, I genuinely don't know how people uh, would respond to it and part of the pleasure of, of showing it was to find out you know be in a room with people and see that and I was able to get my my good friend Stephen Boone a ticket to for him to go out uh and, and check it check it out and I was just like I I I love that like he's like he'd he'd seen parts of it before or, or maybe he'd seen the whole thing before but like it still was a, a, a surprise because like that's the, the 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 beauty of a movie like Dirty Ho it's like it's it's a real genuine uh it'll knock you on your ass kind of surprise because you're expect it leads you to expect certain things and then it's like you know what actually on second thought i'm not going to do that at all i'm just going to backtrack and and run around and and do my own little uh pinwheeling thing and it's uh it's great because it 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 suggests a lot of possibility you know sure well simon thank you so much for coming on the show always a pleasure to chat with you anytime thank you yeah let us know if you spot any massive dumpers on your way home (laughs) can do can do (laughs) it's a a big (laughs) 10-4